Welcome to Invoking Witchcraft, the podcast where the sacred and profane come out to play. So call the quarters and set the round. It's time for another episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Invoking Witchcraft. I am Jay Allen Cross, and I am here with my lovely co-host, Britton Boyd, also known as Archaic Honey on Instagram. How are you doing, Jay? I am doing wonderfully. I just got back from a little bit of a vacation, went to Oregon Ghost Conference, taught some people about ghosts and paranormal investigation, which was tons of fun, and... Got a little time at the beach, which was very, very nice. A little decompression, a little sitting in the sand, a little staring at the water. Mm -hmm. Makes everything a little bit better. Right, right. I remember we did a live in our Facebook coven group and you had literally just come out of the ocean, I recall. I had, like Aquaman. I was still wet. (laughs) You were. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, a good dip in the ocean is like... So refreshing. And our ocean is like so cold. I don't know how you did it. It is refreshing. It restores my soul. It takes off all of the bad energies. Mm -hmm. Good shock to the system. Good shock to the system. Yeah. How about you? I know you've had some interesting changes lately with some new gadgets and some new products, things like that. Very exciting. Right. Yeah. So I am currently sitting in this one of the spare rooms of my house. So I live in a rural location. I have a three bedroom. I pay really cheap rent. Thank God. And the spare room's just been kind of like a dumping ground for like boxes, storage. It's just been a storage room. But I completely cleared it out. And and that's where I'm recording right now. Great acoustics, great lighting. I yeah, I've been sleeping on this room for quite a while. And but it's also where um, I'm doing my product storage for my shop updates. So I have like my shipping table and my racks full of my products. And yeah, I've got a shop update coming up. I don't know when it will coincide with the release of this podcast, but my shop is bloodmoonbotanica.com. And I'm going to have tons of perfumes, lotions, creams, skincare, etc. So that's really what I've been working on. And I do have a new gadget that has really radically changed my life. And I didn't think it would. But it is an electric standing desk. It goes up and down. It's electric. So I can just like literally press a button and it will lower. And then I can press a button and it'll go higher. And it like perfect. It just meets my needs. And I ordered it and I was like, I didn't know it was electric. And when I got it, I was like, oh, God damn it. It's electric. I don't want I want something manual. Turns out I really like it. So I'm very happy. God bless modern conveniences. Right? Right. <laughs> oh, bless it. Oh, mm-hmm. I love that so much. All right, everybody. So it is time for us to bring on our new guest who we are very excited to have here. I am very stoked to introduce the Duchess of Entertaining TikToks, the woman with the voice of a sea witch and the face of an angel. Everybody, welcome. Mara Starling. Mara, welcome to the show. Oh, hello. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so glad to be here today. (laughs) We have had you on our list for a while now. I'm so stoked about your new book that you have out. And I will tell you and everybody else at the top of the show that we know very little about Wales and Welsh culture. And so we're so stoked to have you teach us all the things today. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, no, thank you for inviting me. (laughs) Yeah, it's such a pleasure to have you here. So 
One of the questions that we love, because everybody wants to know um, what your astrology is, if you feel to share that with us, we just want to know your your top three or the whole thing, like what's going on? Well, I'm glad you said that just the top three is fine, because that's pretty much all I know. <laughs> so, um, I, I wish I knew more about astrology, and I'm trying my best to learn more about it. But the only thing I know about my own uh, chart at the moment is I'm a Gemini sun, and then a Scorpio Ascendant or Rising. And I'm also a Virgo Moon. So that's all I know at the minute. <laughs> okay, I love that. I had a feeling, you know, as we were chatting before the show started, you, we were chatting and I was like, mm, I bet she's a Gemini. Oh, yes. I'm one of those two-faced people. <laughs> <laughs> Geminis are always some of my favorites yes. because I envy the way that your brain works. Mm -hmm. As Aries folks, we are very one track and you guys have like 37 tracks all at once. And I bet that that Too is convenient <laughs> sometimes. Mm -hmm. Jim and I are some of my favorite people. They, it's the sign that kind of gets like the shit into the stick in astrology where people are always like, oh, they're so two-faced. And I'm like, no, they're like some of the most dynamic, broad thinking, like they go with the flow and can do things. It's great. I love Gemini energy. Absolutely. Even if it is a little chaotic, sometimes <laughs> having about 72 different thoughts going on at once. <laughs> I love that. Right. I love that. So where did your magical journey begin? Kind of what started you on the path of the witch? Was it something that was like immediate? Did it come up later? Where does this begin for you? Uh, well, I was always immersed in quite a magical landscape. So I grew up in a rural Welsh-speaking community, uh, the middle of nowhere. I grew up in a little village called Aberfrau, and it's a village um, that sits in the kind of southwest of the Isle of Anglesey, Anismorn, um, which is the largest island off the coast of Wales, so um, just at the very tippy top of the north. And on that island, we have like these little tiny villages where everybody speaks Welsh. Everybody speaks Welsh as their first language. And that's where I grew up. So I went to a school that only had 26 students. And um, it was it was great because it meant that our teachers didn't feel restricted to have to teach us the normal things. Um, we weren't separated into classes based on like our year or our um, experience in learning things. We were all together, constantly learning. We went out into the landscape a lot. We did a lot of field trips. And because of the nature of Wales, we have a lot of uh, ancient monuments and a lot of mythology and folk folklore. We ended up learning a lot about that in my school, which is quite a privilege because I thought every school in Wales was like this and everybody learned about the myths and legends of their locale as well as the, um, the history, like the standing stones and chambered tombs and such that we have around the country. I thought everyone must learn about all this, but apparently I've, I've learned growing <laughs> up, no, <laughs> not everyone does. It was just one little privilege that I had. And um, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And some of my favorite days in school were going out into the landscape and being told things such as, oh, you know, this area is referenced in uh, the Mabinogi, where um, Branwen, a mythological figure, got married to the Irish king Matholoch. And yeah, it, it, it was strange and interesting how we were almost immersed in these legends. So when we learned about the legends and the myths of our culture, it, it didn't feel like something separate, something old. It was like, it's here, right here where we are. This is where it happened. And it felt like, I don't know, I felt like growing up, it was just history. It was just what it's happened. Very real. And it wasn't until, yeah, it was visceral and real in front of us. And it almost felt like, you know, we had little folk beliefs and such. So for example, my name, Mara Starling, comes from the fact that, so Starling isn't my actual 
last name. And um, it comes from the fact that starlings play a role in Welsh mythology. They're connected with a, an entity called Branwen. She talked to a starling and trained a starling to speak. And then she sent it over the Irish Sea to get help for her when she was being abused and kept as a captive by the Irish king. And there's this folk tale in on Anglesey, on the Isle of Anglesey, that starlings flock and dance around the place where Branwen died because she dies of a broken heart at the end of the myth. So I brought that in because I remembered those stories growing up. So I was always kind of immersed in magic. And I had a grandmother who was, uh, we, we refer to her as the witchy grandmother because she had these long green fingernails, this big wild hair, and she used to do divination. So she used to read tea leaves, used to read the crystal ball. And she was also deeply obsessed with herbs and things like that. So when she died, I was searching for something that would connect me to her, that would make me feel closer to her. And I was quite young. I was about 11 or 12. And I found a book in a little dusty secondhand bookshop called Spells for Teenage Witches. <laughs> and it was um, a very kitschy little book, just filled with the most quirky and cute little spells and rituals to do for children, for teenagers. And I thought at that time, you know, this is just some fun. This is fantasy. But when I actually started reading the book, I was like, this is more than fantasy. This isn't like Harry Potter or something. This is some kind of belief system. And at 12 years old, I started doing the rituals and spells. I remember doing like a friendship spell from it because I felt like I, I, I needed friends because I didn't have any because <laughs> I was one of the weirdos in the village. And, um, it, was, it just felt so real to me and going out into the land, standing on the cliffs and doing these spells and following the instructions of like how to do, how to make a wand, how to dedicate yourself to the spirits of place. So that was my introduction into witchcraft at that young age, but I was just kind of playing around at that point. And it wasn't until I was about 16, maybe, maybe a bit younger than that, 15, 14, that I met the Anglesey Druid Order. And um, Christopher Hughes specifically, he's also an author with Hewellyn, um, but he was local to me and we became friends and he introduced me to a Welsh stream of paganism and witchcraft. So rather than the uh, more eclectic kind of Wicca inspired witchcraft, which was in the books that I was reading, he introduced me to a regional uh, focus uh, of practice that was very much in the landscape that I was in. And that hooked me because I was like, oh, these things I was learning about as a child they can actually play a role in what I'm doing now as a witch. And that's when my path really transformed and became what it is today. So that was kind of my progression. And since then, I've had a lot of mentors and people that have guided me on the way, uh, joined a few working groups and covens. And now I'm living in Chester, which is just over the border from Wales. So technically, I'm in England now, and that's a bit sacrilegious, I suppose. But um, I'm right next to Wales. I can see Wales from my window. And uh, I run a little coven here and it's it's great because now I can immerse like the Welsh things that I learned growing up and I still go home a lot and it just feels like I'm connected to the land and that's the focus of my craft is connecting to this place connecting to where I'm at right now <laughs> I really love that you you bring it back to um, connection to the land and and like bioregionalism um, I find that 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 is often lacking in like modern popular witchcraft. So I really love that you're speaking to that, um, to that land connection. It's really beautiful. And I love your story too, because I, I think, you know, myself and so many people are going to see themselves in the story too, about, you know, starting off with that teenage witch, you know, uh, a cult book that was eclectic yes. Wicca. This, this weekend <laughs> I was in Portland for just a moment and um, we stopped into Powell's 
bookstore, which is a very well-known bookstore in Portland. And I found a copy of Silver Ravenwolf's Teen Witch with like the original cover with like Yin Yang Belt Girl on it. And I had lost my copy from when I was, you know, 12 or 13 and I first got that book and it was such a huge impact on me. And so finding it again this weekend was so nostalgic. And of course I bought it. And now, now you're bringing up something very similar here. So I think we all have a very shared visceral memory of kind of like that first <laughs> book that was like terrible, but it was wonderful at the same time. <laughs> like so good, so good. And I love the Teen Witch one. So we're curious as American, like this is an American podcast and such, what is it that makes whales so magical? Um, and feel free to go any direction with this and provide, you know, any information that you like, such as like unique history, legends, lore, etc. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Oh, gosh, there's I think that's a really big question. I always kind of panic when somebody asks <laughs> me that because I'm like, oh, where do I begin? Because this is where I can get on my pedestal. <laughs> So the first thing I always mention to people when they ask what's so magical about whales is, well, first and foremost, you know, we have a dragon on our flag, <laughs> like our <laughs> national yes, flag, right? literally, we're not just three colors or a cross, we're literally this big dragon. And it's so dramatic. And I love it. I think it tells you a lot about like what we're like as a people. <laughs> and um, I think the fact that the dragon is on the flag should be a little indicator of what kind of mythology we have rooted within our landscape and what kind of people we are as a nation. So um, we have a rich body of mythology. A lot of our mythology is uh, recorded at the minute in medieval literature. So uh, a lot of what we have of the myths and legends of Wales, which aren't actually that well known, they might be well known within folkloric circles or within circles of people who are interested in witchcraft, but on a grander scale compared to say like Egyptian, Roman or Greek mythology. Welsh mythology is fairly unknown, but we do have this rich, deep collection of mythology which stretches back throughout the centuries. And I don't think people realize how old a lot of our mythology is, because though we have some of the oldest written literature in all of Europe, we have some of the oldest written um, accounts of mythology throughout the whole of Europe, that written stuff is not the original tales. So a lot of them came from older oral traditions that predated the medieval period, that predated writing even, predated the Christian era. So it, a lot of these stories could be echoes or remnants of pre-Christian concepts and ideas. And maybe they have echoes of old gods and old uh, entities that people worshipped in this landscape. And I just love it. And those stories include a lot of characters that are infamous in modern fantasy and modern like magic today in general. So characters such as Merlin and Arthur from the Arthurian legends, they have their origins in Welsh mythology. And then we have like uh, concepts such as the dragons fighting under the castle, which is one that a lot of people seem to know, but don't know where it's from. And yeah, it's just, there's so much of our myths that just are so beaming and teeming with magic and I absolutely love it and it's one of my pastimes is just to read a lot of our mythology and then beyond that we also have a rich um, folkloric tradition so we have so much folklore surrounding fairies and witches and other mystical and magical creatures uh, and it's very much integral to who we are as a people because we very much put these myths and stories on a pedestal and we love them and we celebrate them so much and it was things that we learned about. I know, as I said earlier, not everyone learned about them, but it was very much part of our cultural, like, I guess, identity to learn about the myths mm -hmm. and legends. And 
again, like I said, going around landscape and being told this is where these dragons fought. This is where these kings and these wizards came. We have an entire place in Wales called Dinas Emeris, which literally translates to Merlin's city. So it's like we we have such a rich amount of mythology and folklore and folk magic. And I just absolutely adore all of it. And my favorite areas to study are predominantly the fairy faith. So the beliefs that people had in the fairy folk and the folklore and folk magic of this region, because they can be really interesting. But as a whole as well, going away from the kind of magical, the obvious kind of magical aspects of our culture, our language and culture as well is so rooted and embedded in art and in expression, in like artistic expression in general. Within our national anthem, we have the line, Glad Beir Dachantorion, which translates to mean a land of bards and singers. We literally like excel and celebrate at like singing and creating poetry. We have a bardic tradition, a poetic tradition that spans back to ancient times, probably the oldest bardic tradition there is, and our language originates from that bardic tradition, from this poetic tradition that was much more than poetry, because poetry in the old Brythonic period of time, before the Christians came here, before the Romans came here, the bards were the magicians, were people who were basically taking charge of entire communities and could sway entire civilizations just with their words. And I think there's a magic in that. And knowing that our language has origins there in those like strange poetic bardic traditions and it's become what it is today. It's, I don't know, it just fills me with great joy knowing just how much magic there is rooted in our culture. And yet, not many people know about us. <laughs> we're just hidden away and misunderstood. So it's kind of like we're we're a little hidden gem of magic and mischief and art. <laughs> that is so interesting. And I love that you're talking mm. about, you know, being able to actually see these locations where these, you know, folkloric stories or these legends and myths kind of happen. You know, in the United States, so much of myth is is brought over. And so all of it's kind of like in a magical land, far, far away in some other nebulous place that we, you know, magical place, you know, versus when you were learning these things, it's like right there is where the dragons were doing a thing. And that's, that grounds it so intensely in where you are and makes it so very real. And I think that's fascinating. I bet that would be cool. Absolutely. It is strange just kind of thinking, oh yeah, just down that road over there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you talked a little bit about being in Wales and then you are now currently living over the border in England. Um, Can you break down from some of our listeners in the United States? Because we do not get taught this. And I think in the United States, we all think that words like England, Britain, and the United Kingdom are all interchangeable. Um, but they're, Mm. they're different, right? Can you lightly let us know what, what the difference is so we can use them correctly? Absolutely. Yeah. It it is one thing that, um, I'm quite passionate about is kind of correcting people on that. (laughs) I don't know if that makes it sound really bad, but, um, to give you a little like story, I remember when I moved to university in England, uh, that's why I'm in England. I started here because I went to school here and, um, I met a, a a lovely girl who was from Germany and she instantly, when she got to know me, she was like, oh, because I used to hang out with the kind of international students who spoke numerous languages and um, they kind of 
glomped onto each other because we were all either bilingual or monoglots, uh, not monoglots, polyglots. Mm -hmm. So we were all speaking numerous languages. And she was really interested in the language that I spoke. And she was like, so where are you from? And I said, Wales. And she went, but Wales is just like a little part of England, isn't it? How do you have your own culture and your own language? I don't understand. And I was like, because we're a separate country, like we're not quite England. Like we're not England at all, really. We are part of the United Kingdom, uh, but we're not English. And that was where I realized, like having that conversation with her and with other people that went to university with me, I realized just how much people do not know about the little dynamics going on in what we now call the United Kingdom, the British Isles and such. So to give it kind of a rough break, and I hope I can do this well where it makes sense. You can Google this too, and they might make a, do a better job than me. But um, the British Isles, so the British Isles in general is the island of Britain. So the bit that's not stuck to Europe. So though we're European, Britain and the British Isles is kind of off the side. So all those islands are called the British Isles. And technically, even Ireland is part of the British Isles, so to speak. And then Great Britain is the combination of, let me see if I can remember this right and not offend anybody. Uh, Great Britain is Scotland, England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. So it's four countries that have all come together to create Great Britain. And the Republic of Ireland is no longer part of Great Britain. Uh, it once was a colony and now it's not, but uh, now it's just Scotland, Wales, England, and Northern Ireland. And then beyond that, you then have uh, the United Kingdom. Oh, wait, no, I think I've mixed it up. I'm so sorry. <laughs> the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is Scotland, England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And then Great Britain is just Scotland, England, and Wales. So Scotland, England, and Wales make mm -hmm. up Great Britain. And then the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland is Scotland, England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Ireland, the Republic of Ireland is its own thing. So within Great Britain, we have three countries, and that's Scotland, England, and Wales. And they all come together to make what we know now as Great Britain. And then along with Northern Ireland makes up the United Kingdom, which is a United Kingdom of numerous nations. So though we are all governed by England, technically, because technically Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland were still colonies of England, were still part of the... Uh, the, the rulership of England, we do have and have been fighting for so many years now our own um, autonomy and our own identity and our own cultures as well. And it even gets more complicated than that because even certain parts of England have their own little dynamics going on. So for example, one that I can think of at the top of my head is Cornwall. Cornwall is down in the south of England. And if you went up to a Cornish person, a proud Cornish person and said, so you're English, they'd probably get upset too and go, no, I'm not English. English and Cornish. <laughs> it's different. And they're their own Celtic nation with their own language as well. But unfortunately, they're not classed officially as their own country in the same way that Wales and Scotland are. So Wales and Scotland are classed officially as our own countries, as separate from England. We're not part of England, even though politically there are some things going on that makes us technically ruled by them. But things have been changing a lot lately and uh, we have our own parliaments. So here in Wales, we have the Senedd, which is our own devolved parliament. We make our own decisions for our own country. And 
in a lot of areas, there has been talks of independence. So we're trying to move away from the governorship of England now because it's not working. It's not going very well. We don't get any money from Westminster. It's kind of like we have people over there making all the decisions for us while we're over here kind of struggling and suffering. And yeah, it's it's such a strange dynamic. And it's one thing that I always mention to people who are interested in Celtic practices within like paganism and such is, you know, remember that we are a modern people. Mm-hmm. Celtic things are not just like the people of the past. The Celtic nations are still alive here and now. And we have our own political movements and such going on. And it's complicated. And if you're interested in Celtic mythology, magic, anything like that, then you should also get to know who are the people today and what are they going through? And can you in any way support our movements to be independent? And I think one thing I love about Wales is that we've made such a huge effort to bring our language um, into the forefront of our culture. So we now have almost um, a a million speakers of the, of the Welsh language. Uh, I know it doesn't sound like much, but somewhere between 20 to 25% of the population now speak Welsh, which, as I said, doesn't sound like much, but compared to other Celtic nations who have also had their language suppressed, that's actually really good. And we're doing really well. And it's just growing and growing. So we're building our own identity now and kind of trying to put our mark on the world and explain no, we're not England. (laughs) We're not English. We are Welsh. And we just happen to be governed and ruled by England um, due to, you know, basically the blueprint of colonization. (laughs) Oh, interesting. And I love that kind of like the Welsh language is coming back a bit and that it's still being maintained and all of that. And I, I feel like this is such a good conversation, especially for a lot of our listeners in the United States, because, you know, in the United States, when Wales comes up, we, we, we have two things that we know. We know, like, corgis and Princess Diana, and that's about <laughs> as much as we kind of know over here. So this is wonderful. I feel like we're, we're, we're getting the education that we need today. <laughs> Thank you very much. So you speak Welsh, and... Um... Yeah, because like you were kind of talking about the Welsh language and all of that. Um, Is it is that very common nowadays? And are there are there different dialects of the Welsh language? So the Welsh language is it's more common in certain parts of Wales. So, for example, in the north and on Anglesey, it's quite common, very common to speak Welsh. Um, I come from, as I said, a, a rural Welsh speaking community. So my entire village spoke Welsh. It was something like 60% of the population of my village spoke wow. Welsh. And the other 40% are mostly people who have moved here from England or who, you know, have for some reason ended up there. So most of the people who actually grew up in the village and have like family in the village who have lived there for a long time, they all speak Welsh. And I remember when I was growing up, I didn't ever speak English. I struggled with English as well. So I went to an all Welsh speaking primary school, which is the school you go to between the ages of like five and 11. And then from 11 till 16, when I was in secondary school or high school, um, that was also a completely Welsh school. So we we only spoke English during English classes in those in school days. Um, mm. When I went to college, it was a bilingual college. So half my classes were in English and half my classes were in Welsh. And then finally, when I went to university, because I crossed the border and went to university in Manchester, that was the first time that I went into an education system where it was primarily English or completely English because we didn't do any Welsh in England, but it was just completely English. And it was quite a shock to my system. Them, especially like with writing and such, because um, I was so used to writing essays or um, any kind of 
uh, things that we had to do for homework for school back in Wales in Welsh and then I moved to England and it was like oh (laughs) now I have to write a whole essay in English and um, it was quite complicated but I know there are some parts of Wales where the language isn't as spoken as it was in my area Uh, there are areas where the suppression of the language and the movements of like English people moving into the country has completely almost shut down the language and very small amounts of the population actually speak the Welsh language now in those areas. And it's quite sad, I think. And um, I remember when I was growing up, I had this very backwards and bigoted belief that you're not really Welsh unless you speak Welsh. Because, and in my eyes, I remember like being like this edgy teenager at 13, being like, you'd never meet a French person and be like, oh yeah, you're French, but you don't speak French. That makes sense. So why do we do it with Welsh people but then I actually educated myself on the history of like why our language isn't spoken as much and why it's been suppressed and pushed aside there was an entire system like in uh, throughout history in Wales where people were punished for speaking the Welsh language and it was put down as mm. this strange like they used to use words such as like primitive like oh it's a primitive language that's like not that's backwards and we need to be enlightened and speak English the, the tongue of the like good educated people and so Welsh was pushed aside and brushed aside and there are quite nasty stories of things like um, if anybody's interested in Welsh history look up the Welsh knot and to give a little kind of brief overview of the Welsh knot it was a very harsh punishment for children in schools where if they were caught speaking Welsh in school if uh, during their school time to their like friends not even just in class but to their friends on the playground if they were caught speaking Welsh they'd have to wear this big wooden plaque with the letters WN carved into it around their neck. And whoever had the big wooden plaque with WN on it by the end of the day had to be cane, had to be whipped over the side with a cane. And it was this oh my God. Yeah, this intense punishment. And there are people still alive today. I I remember speaking to like some people's great grandparents who still remember that, who still remember being punished for speaking the language and didn't have the chance to really completely um, immerse themselves in the culture of their people. And so when I learned all that, I kind of stepped away from that bigoted view of like, oh, you're only Welsh if you speak Welsh. Now I'm much more, uh, I I guess, thoughtful about the concept of like why we don't speak it and why there's such an issue. Um, and, And when it comes to like dialects and such, we used to have a lot more Um, I know there's a lot of people on Twitter and such who are trying to bring back certain dialects, but because of the rise and fall of Welsh, it kind of became quite standardized. So though we have like a variation in things like accents and there are different words, so I guess you would say dialects between say the south of Wales and the north of Wales, or there are certain areas, uh, even like in in tiny villages. So I was speaking to someone the other day and they were saying there's an Aberfrau dialect of Welsh, which is the village I'm from. And I stopped for a second. I was like, is there? Do I speak a different dialect to everyone else? And then I realized, oh, I do, because I do pronounce certain words differently. And I also use different words. So like the best example I can think is uh, the word for kitchen in Welsh is gekin. But in Aberfrau, and I've never heard this anywhere else in Wales, in Aberfrau, we call the living room the gekin and the kitchen's just the kitchen. (laughs) So we just say it in a Welsh way. So it's like even noticing that there's little dialects like that now, a little kind of I don't know, strange differences and variations in the way people speak dependent on the region they're on. And I just think at one point I remember 
as I said again, when I used to have those really backwards views about Welsh and such, I used to um, say things like, oh, the people from South Wales, they don't speak real Welsh like us up north. But now I've grown a real like interest and love for learning about the differences and the way that people like say this word differently or use a completely different word for the same thing. Or they have this word, which means this up where I'm from, but down there it means this. And I, I just, I find it so intriguing nowadays. And yes, there are so many movements now to bring the language back. There are free Welsh lessons. Mm. Uh, I think they're trying to push Welsh in schools a lot more. And they're trying to get us to a million speakers before 2050. And I think we're going to smash that because we're already there now. We're already at like something like 900,000 awesome. now. So I think we're going to smash it by 2050, definitely. Uh, the one thing that I dislike is there are some people who are vehemently against the Welsh language, and I don't get why. There's a lot of people who say that it's useless, that it's not going to be um, useful in life when you go out into the world because it's only this one little corner that speaks it. And I'm just like, are you... Do you not have any pride in like the culture of our land? <laughs> like, do you not want to keep this language alive and like keep our cultural identity alive? I remember being um, in school with one of my friends, and her father was completely against Welsh and said that it was um, a kind of like an impingement on their human rights, making it so that they had to speak Welsh in school. And I was like, oh, honey, why are you so obsessed with being oppressed? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) but I'm really glad that Wales is like pioneering in pushing themselves forward and trying to bring the culture and language back in a very amazing way. And I keep saying it like that. I don't think that's the right words to even use anymore. Bring it back because it's here. It's alive and it's well. Keeping it alive is a better way of saying it rather than bring it back because it never went anywhere. It never died. It just kind of went through phases where it lowered and rose and we're rising again now. So hopefully by 2050, there will be numerous fluent speakers. And I'm always happy to see even people all the way in America learning it nowadays. <laughs> right. Yeah. There are like apps that you can use. I think like Babbel or um, what's like there's the other one, that, the, the map. All the Duolingo. You're right. Owl. And I've seen that you can learn. Yeah. And I've seen that you can learn Welsh. Uh, through these uh, language apps, which is really fascinating. I have some Welsh ancestry, and uh, it's been an interest of mine because I, I find the language just like you said, so poetic and it's it's beautiful. So I've maybe maybe this is the encouragement I need to learn some Absolutely. Welsh words. Oh yes, please do. <laughs> can, you, can you teach us a couple of here, some basic ones? Ooh. Some yes, absolutely. So I think to keep on theme. I'll teach you some words that are surrounding magic and witchcraft just for fun. So our word for magic, I'll start with that one because it's very easy. Uh, The word for magic in Welsh is hyd. And it may sound like complicated to the ear. It's kind of similar to the English word hid, like, oh, he hid in the closet. But instead of hid and making it like a really long word, we then have the letter U, which is pronounced in Welsh as E. So it's almost like an E sound. So it's hyd, hyd. Hid. Yes, hid. Oh, hid. Oh, I like that. So we have hid, which is magic. And then, um, ooh, what other word? We've got tirlin, which is a word I love. So tirlin, to break it down. And that means landscape. So tirlin. 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 
Tiddling, yes. So that's landscapes. You've got magic, landscape, and then here's a very a bit of a longer word for you that might be fun to do, and that's swingavareth. Swingavareth. <laughs> oh, I can't do that. <laughs> uh, to break it down, it's su in ge su in yeah, su in ge var ev. <laughs> Soup. <laughs> say, say it all together. <laughs> Jay and I just gave up. Swin Gavareth. Swin Gavareth. Oh, yes. Oh, Brilliant. You got this it, Jay. Fun. Thank you. Oh. So that word means um, it's kind of like I use it to mean witchcraft, but it doesn't really translate to witchcraft. It's more the art of enchantment and the art of charming. And I love that word. So it's basically a word that means folk magic, like the art of folk magic. So if you were a practitioner, an Amarverwer or Hidaswin Gwerin, which is a, a practitioner of magic and folk magic specifically, then you would practice Swin Gavarev. <laughs> I love Very that. Cool. And I'm hoping that this is inspiring more people to learn Welsh. We can get we can get you to that one million, hopefully here. We can get all Absolutely. Oh, that's fun. And maybe one day I can teach you to say Hanvaid Puchwingekogerichwindrop Cantasilio Gogogoch. Maybe one day. One day. What does that mean? Uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's the name of a town in Wales, which was literally 10 minutes down the road from me when I was growing up. Um, when we referred to it locally, we used to just say Llanfair PG because we could not be bothered with the full name. But the full name is Llanfair Pwchgwingich And that word is basically a story of like what the town is. A lot of people always joke it's directions because that is what it is. Oh. It's basically like, where's the town? Okay, so it's by the caves of the by the red caves and the whirlpools, and it's, it's a long one, <laughs> but it's a fun word to to learn if you're learning Welsh uh, and look it up. The longest place name in Wales. <laughs> that is so cool! <laughs> wow, very cool. So um, we're going to take a little turn here um, in our conversation. Um, where do you see Welsh influence in modern mm. witchcraft? Oh, I see Welsh influence in a lot of modern witchcraft. And this is something I, I really hope I can talk about more in future, in maybe future books or projects. Uh, but it is something that I love looking into. And I don't think a lot of modern witches really notice how much of it comes from Welsh influence. So one of the uh, main things that I always mention is Gerald Gardner, when he was constructing his kind of version of witchcraft, he was inspired by the folklore and the myths and legends of the British Isles in general. So he drew upon myths and legends from Scotland, from England, from Wales, and even from Ireland. And he kind of mixed them all together in this pot and created a, a kind of expression of witchcraft that became his own. And we always say it was kind of like the pick and mix of witchcraft because he just took bits from all over. And that's where we get like the Wheel of the Year. The Wheel of the Year is a fun one because there's all these Celtic names and they're not kind of uniform. They're not all from one Celtic culture. <laughs> there, there's Celtic names, there's English names. It's strange. And one of the Welsh names on the Wheel of the Year is Mapon or Mabon. I know some people pronounce it. Uh, the word in Welsh would be pronounced Mapon. 
And it's always one that is kind of an area of contention for Welsh practitioners because Mapon is a figure, a deity in some people's practice from Welsh mythology. He was a child that was taken away from his mother when he was very, very young and hidden away somewhere. And he takes part in a lot of Arthurian legends uh, that can be found in the Mabinogi, which is our mythology. And Mapon has absolutely nothing to do with the autumn equinox. So why exactly that name was chosen? And obviously, I can't blame Gerald Gardner for that. Um, Gerald Gardner just called the Autumn Equinox the Autumn Equinox. The correlation with Mapon came much later in the 70s from Aidan Kelly. Mm-hmm. Um, but Mapon has absolutely nothing to do with the Autumn Equinox. And it always kind of ruffles a lot of feathers. It's like some people are like, no, I can make sense of it. You know, he was he was a child that was taken from his mother and his mother was withering and dying. And maybe we can see that as an expression of the goddess and the land because his mother is Motron, the goddess that is associated with the landscape. So it's like, okay, it's a stretch, but yeah, we can do that. <laughs> Whereas other people are like, no, we need to abandon Maben or Mapon as the name of the autumn equinox and just call it the autumn equinox <laughs> instead or something. Right. So that's one area of influence. And you see a lot of things like that, little bits of influence. But I think um, one of the two, actually, of the most influential aspects of Welsh law that seems to influence uh, modern witchcraft today. The first one is um, the battle between Gwynapnir and uh, another Arthurian knight. I can't remember the name of it now. I think it's Gwythyr. It is, it is, it's Gwythyr. So Gwynapnir and Gwythyr are two um, entities that can be found in Welsh mythology, again, in Arthurian legends, in legends featuring the older version of Arthur that comes from Welsh mythology. And uh, this story might sound very familiar, but basically there's this character called Credolad, who is this very beautiful woman, and they're, uh, they're both fighting for her hand. And the story is really convoluted and I very much recommend someone reading it, but it ends with uh, Gwynapnir and Gwythyr deciding that every year on May Day, they're going to come together and battle for Credolad, for the hand of Credolad. And a lot of people think that this might be the origin of the Holly and the Oak King Mm -hmm. story, which has no basis in actual uh, antiquity, is something that comes from later kind of romantic period authors and Robert Graves and such. But the fact that, you know, there's this battle between two entities that come together every year to fight out is very reminiscent of the modern pagan myth of the Holly and the Oak King. Mm -hmm. And then the other one that um, I think is more obviously an interpretation of Welsh myth found in modern witchcraft is the story of Ceritwen and the uh, birth of Taliesin. Mm -hmm. So Ceritwen was a witch and a mother who wanted her son to be accepted by society. And she said, well, if he can't be attractive, if he can't be beautiful, because he was very, very ugly, then he can be clever. He can be smart instead. So I'm going to brew a potion of pure awen. And awen in the Welsh tradition is the spirit or force of divine inspiration. It's very much the spark of all things, the spark of creation. So she concocted this idea to create a potion that was Awen, that if you drank it, you would become the most knowledgeable, wise, and insightful person in the world. And the part of the story that I think is very influential on witchcraft is that in some versions of the legend that are very popular and would have been read by people like Robert Graves, who in turn influenced people 
people like Gerald Gardner and then influenced the whole of modern witchcraft is the fact that when Kerithwen was creating this brew of divine inspiration, this brew of Awen, she had to work at it and study the lore of the plants around her and what she needed to use for a year and a day. And then at the end of a year and a day, the potion would be ready. And that's something, that's an idea, a concept that you see in a lot of initiatory traditions, Mm -hmm. where it's like you have to study for a year and a day before you can be inducted into this coven or into this order. Uh, It's something we see a lot in Wicca and in many streams of witchcraft today is this, you study and you learn and practice for a year and a day to go through that initiatory cycle. So it's almost like there's an initiatory feel to Keritwen's story as a whole. She had to go through this year and a day before she could reach her goal. And I think that's been very influential on uh, initiatory traditions and covens in general. So yeah, but there's lots of stories like that where it's quite obvious when you read it, like, oh, that's where that comes <laughs> from. And it's almost wow. sad that people don't know that that's where it comes from. <laughs> right. Yeah, knowing the origin point of um, a lot of the influences in witchcraft is really helpful to understand other cultures and influences and stuff and pay pay respect to where they come from. Absolutely. That is fascinating. Mm. That is so interesting. Now, you see, now I have to get your book. Now I have to read it because now I am I'm so stoked about learning all this stuff. Um, so can you give us a little brief overview of your book and maybe tell us kind of what your favorite section in it is, if you have a favorite section, maybe? Absolutely. So my book is an insight into Welsh witchcraft, as the title suggests, but it's more than just, um, so I'm not sitting here trying to present this old antiquated stream of witchcraft that is, you know, thousands of years old. I'm not trying to say like, oh, I'm the, I'm the reincarnation of some grand high Welsh witch <laughs> who's bringing you knowledge from the ancient past. I very much present it as I'm a modern woman living in the modern world and I'm a modern witch. And this is how I, as a Welsh woman living today, utilize um, the influential aspects of history, of folk magic, of folklore and mythology that stems from Wales in order to inform my practice Mm -hmm. today. So my practice is rooted in the land. It's rooted in the mythology and folklore of that land and also in the folk practices and magical customs of the land. So I did look to a lot of historical texts. I'm very privileged in that I can read and write and uh, speak in Welsh. So I had a lot of old Welsh books in my collection that have such a rich collection of like folk magical practices that were utilized in Wales, divinatory practices and things like that. And it's just reading between the lines and bringing these practices back and utilizing them today. Uh, and also talking a little bit about how the landscape itself has influenced my practice today. Um, so the book is kind of a mixture. It's it's part insight into the history, the mythology, the folklore, and the folk magic of Wales, looking at it from a more kind of studious perspective, like if you want to study those aspects of Wales. But it's also a practical guide to those things, like how do I as a witch today incorporate these things into my practice? Because I think sometimes just reading, you know, the people of Wales used to do this, that's not always helpful. Sometimes it's nice to see, so this is what happened historically, and as a witch today, this is what I do with that information. Mm-hmm. That's how I bring it back mm-hmm. to today and 
bring it mm-hmm. into a context. So you'll find information in my book all about, say, the history of magic and witchcraft in Wales, which is fascinating by itself. The fact that we have a completely unique and different history to England, for example, which is strange considering we're right there next to them. It's strange that, for example, during the witch trials, Wales was virtually untouched by the witch trials. And why is that? Was there something in our culture maybe that made us averse to hunting and killing witches? Why did we not do it as much as the English did? So we explore that. Um, But there's just so much in there. And then also mythology as well and folklore. I also to explore the lore surrounding fairies and the fairy faith of Wales, because that's quite an important aspect of our culture. There's herbal lore, there's practical hands-on spells, rituals, charms. And then there's also an insight into, say, a Welsh version of, you could say, the Wheel of the Year. So it's more just a, an insight into what did people of what did the people of Wales used to celebrate and what do we still celebrate to this day? There's aspects in there, for example, such as the Welsh equivalent to Valentine's Day, which is uh, Diwrnod Santis Dwynwen, which is the day of St. Dwynwen, where we celebrate and honour love in all its forms. And we still celebrate that today. And so I included that as well as other special days throughout the year. So it's, it's kind of a mixture of my practice and what I know historically fused together into this guide that I wrote. And I hope it's good. <laughs> I hope it's it's fun and informative. And I'm hoping it will not be my last book either, that I'm going to explore these things in more depth as I go forward. But this is basically your introductory guide to Welsh witchcraft uh, and also just to my practice as a witch today living in Wales and growing up in Wales in the culture. Um, I think my favourite part of the book, it's it's a strange one because I, I love and hate it. <laughs> and that's the, there's a whole chapter right. called Fairy Tales of Wales. <laughs> so, um, and I, I love it because this is the one that, the, the one chapter that people have reached out to me the most and gone, that chapter was so cool. I loved learning about the fairy tales and the folk tales of Wales. And it's one that I wasn't particularly proud of when I was writing it, because it's basically just my retelling of some of my favorite fairy tales. And I was like, oh, what's this going to give people? You know, I didn't include practices afterwards or exercises afterwards. It's just literally me retelling the story and then talking a little bit about how that might influence your witchcraft today. And I was like, eventually, I'd love to do that better. But then when the book came out, that's the chapter that everyone was like, oh, that was my favorite. You did really well with that one. So it's almost like it's become my favorite because <laughs> other people have told me that it's their favorite. So I'm glad that people like the fairy tales because I do think it's something that a lot of witchcraft books do not include. We hear a lot about deities and myths and legends and such, but we don't hear as much about the folk tales and the fairy tales that inspire the witchcraft. Right. So yeah, it is probably one of my favorite sections. and that's kind of an overview of my book. (laughs) That is excellent. Awesome. And I love too that you are trying to bring it into today's world. And I think that there's such a a need right now for that. Because I think classically, we've tried to kind of like, you know, keep everything like, oh, this is how they did it back then. Like, and it's this need to sort of shove it into the past and keep it in the past. And I'm like, that is a surefire way to let all these things die instead of like, bring them forward with us. And I think that that's Mm -hmm. so important. And I think Mm -hmm. that that is so neat um, that you're bringing that here. So thank you for doing that for all of us. So what is next for Mara Starling? Uh, You talk about maybe, maybe more books. Do you have other stuff planning happening? What's, what's coming next? Uh, So I do have other books in the works. I have other books that I'm currently writing, other books that I'm working on, um, all hush hush, kind of like, I hope that they, that they happen. I need to actually 
give myself a little kick up the backside <laughs> and get them done. Um, but on top of that, I also do a lot of content online at the minute, a lot of free content that people can find anywhere. I write a lot on Instagram about Welsh law. I create videos on YouTube about Welsh things. Do I speak about anything other than Wales? <laughs> but um, I have a YouTube and Instagram, Twitter, all those kind of social media links where I do tend to like to make little posts about witchcraft, magic, folklore, myth and legend of Wales and how it incorporates into my practice. Um, I also have a Patreon if anyone fancies supporting me where I do offer like uh, video lessons every month. I, I'm not very good at Patreon, I will admit, because I, I never know like how much to give uh, people and like how much to do for free because I don't want to feel like anyone's excluded, but I'm trying to get better at doing more for Patreon. Um, and then the biggest thing I'm really excited for at the minute is I'm coming out with my own podcast. So uh, today, Yay. <laughs> earlier today, I uploaded um, a trailer to the podcast up on my YouTube. It'll be releasing on April 15th. And the podcast will be a uh, kind of a mixture. Some episodes will be just me talking into the microphone about an aspect of Welsh myth, legend, law, folk, magic, history, anything like that, that influences my practice and how to incorporate it into yours. So it'll be an insight into the history of it, an insight into what it means to me and to people in Wales today that practice this stuff, and also how you can do that too. Some episodes will also just be me reading a folktale or a myth and then giving some commentary on it and how it can inspire us. Um, but then other episodes, which I'm more excited for, are interviews where I'll be talking to other Welsh practitioners or people that are somehow influenced by Wales in some capacity. So for example, for the first few episodes, I have interviews with people such as Christopher Hughes, who is the chief of the Anglesey Druid Order. He's a death professional. He's a television star here in Wales. He's a drag queen on Welsh television. And he's also just the head of the Anglesey Druid Order. So he's a quite interesting person to um, look into. And he also happens to be my friend. So I kind of coaxed him into doing it <laughs> with me. But I also have people such as CCJ Ellis, who is a an artist and illustrator who is inspired by mythical creatures and folklore of Wales. And um, they create the these amazing illustrations of Welsh creatures from myth and legend. And I just love them so much. And then also Shanister Powell, who is not a pagan or a witch, but she's uh, Cornish and she's an academic who has studied these myths and legends from an academic perspective. And we had a really interesting chat about where do pagans and academics kind of butt heads sometimes? And, you know, what are some things that she as an academic thinks we're getting wrong? And what are things that I as a witch think they're getting wrong as academics? And it was a really fun conversation so those are just three people that i've interviewed and i'm going to have some more but the welsh witch podcast starts on april 15th and people who are subscribed to my patreon will get early access so they'll get to listen to it about a week before everyone else as well as get access to exclusive episodes that nobody else will see so those are things that i'm really excited for <laughs> Yay, that sounds that fantastic. That sounds great. And we cannot wait to see what you do next. We cannot wait to read your current book, which is available pretty much everywhere right now, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much everywhere. So if you're in America, you can get it on the Huellin website directly or off of sites such as Amazon. But I very much recommend going to your independent booksellers and getting them to order it in. Uh, and same in the UK, you can go to like Waterstones or Amazon anywhere or independent booksellers and it's the same across the world. So <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> it is. Well, thank you so much for coming here today, Mara. It has been fascinating to speak with you and get to learn all about um, Wales and Welsh culture. And thank you so much for sharing with us today.
Oh, thank you both for inviting me on. It was absolutely a pleasure speaking to you. All right, everybody. So remember to learn about Welsh culture and do witchcraft. Do it. Support for this podcast comes from our listeners. If you would like to support Invoking Witchcraft with a one-time donation, please go to invokingwitchcraft.com backslash donate. Or if you'd like to become a premium listener, join the coven at invokingwitchcraft.com backslash coven. There you'll get access to our exclusive Facebook group for discussion and connection, as well as access to occasional workshops. We hope to see you there. 